All right, church, if you would open your Bibles to Psalms 124 and 130. Uh, if you'd rather not have two Psalms far apart in the Bible like that, they are both in your worship guide or in the handout booklet that we have been using for this sermon series. We are talking about this morning my favorite thing to talk about. And for many of you, your favorite thing to hear me talk about. And for some of you today in the room, the most important message that you need to hear. We're talking this morning about God's rescue of his people from sin and death and judgment. Uh, the news that saved me and saved so many in this room. Uh, we're going to see it uh, exposited here from, from two psalms. Uh, if you're just joining us, you'd want to know that we're in the middle of a sermon series through a group of psalms called the Psalms of Ascent. And that's a fun word, and it means that those psalms were, were gathered together. It's about 15 psalms from 120 to 134, uh, gathered together for Israel to sing on the way from their hometowns up to Jerusalem, where they went for festivals of worship three times a year. And when they made that journey, it was a long journey, and it wore them out. It was exhausting, and it was dangerous sometimes. Uh, and they were going from a place where God was far to the place where God was near and, and dwelled. Now, they weren't making this journey alone. They were traveling in, in groups, in caravans, and they were singing these songs the whole way. And in that way, they teach us about the Christian life, which is so very similar, going from a place where God is far to a place where God himself, Jesus Christ himself, dwells in the flesh. And walking a long, tiring journey uh, that is dangerous in many parts, but not walking it alone. We have each other. We have a group, right? And we sing these songs the whole way to encourage us. And in that way, these psalms teach us about the Christian life. Today, the two psalms we are looking at take us down to the basics of the Christian life. What does it mean to be one of God's people? It means to have been rescued by God. These psalms are arranged symmetrically. The first one corresponds with the last, the second one to the second to last. So we are taking them from the outside in, in pairs. Today, looking at the fifth and the fifth to last, that is Psalm 124 and Psalm 130. Let's look at them together. I'll read them to you. Psalm 124, a song of ascents of David. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel not say, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive. When their anger kindled against us, then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord, who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken, and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. And Psalm 130, a song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. O oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him there is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all of his iniquities. 
These are the words of our Lord. Through those two psalms, the Spirit moves His people to rejoice at the way He has rescued us from sin, from death, and from judgment. These two psalms have one thing in common. They both use the imagery of a flood to talk about God rescuing us. So the first psalm uses a picture of a flood to talk about the many enemies that were attacking them. Some foreign army, somebody was attacking them. And the opposing force was so overwhelming that it felt like floodwaters coming and sweeping them away. And they say, if the Lord hadn't been on our side in that battle, we would have been swept away. So flood imagery to talk about Israel's enemies ganging up on them and swelling up on them. And then the second one, Psalm 130, uses the same kind of picture. But this time, the person is drowning in the depths. He's not looking back saying, thank God for rescuing me. He is in the midst of the flood crying out for rescue. So he says, out of the depths, I cry out to you, Lord, hear my voice. And the flood in this psalm represents something different. It represents the the weight of our sins piled up against God and the judgment piled up for those sins and even death that is coming for us. And so he says, Lord, if you counted iniquities, who would be able to stand? But, But with you, there is forgiveness. So he is in the depths of, of sin and coming judgment and death. And he cries out, God, save me. So in that way, the two Psalms have that imagery in common of a flood. And so before we dive deep into them, I want to give you a couple of interpretive keys to help you to take them into the Christian life and use them. We have pictures here of a flood, and we have a lot of talk about God's enemies. Let's talk first about the people of God's enemies. What do you do with psalms that talk about war and battles and the enemies of God swelling up against us and our victory over them? What do you do with those when you are living under Jesus' teaching and he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you? Or the letters which say, in as much as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. The Christian way is the way of peace, the way of loving our enemies. And we believe that, we trust in that. But then a lot of times, Christians will come even to me or to their teachers and ask, so what do I do about all those psalms where David is shooting arrows at his enemies? Like, love, love your enemies, what do I do with that? Well, the way you can interpret those today and get something from them is to remember that not all of your enemies are human. In fact, we have in the scriptures some cosmic enemies. And the New Testament says our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of this world. So we do have enemies like like sin and like death and Satan himself. And it's okay to hate death. And I hope you hate your indwelling sin. I hope you hate sin. And so those cosmic enemies with whom our battle is against today, we can take these psalms and apply them to those enemies. So in a psalm like 124, when we hear about an army swelling up against God's people, you can look at that and say, okay, would this work if it were about sin? Yeah, it would. Would this work if it were about death rising up like a flood and the Lord rescuing me from it? 
Yes, indeed it would. And so since our battle is against those forces, we can take psalms like this and let them teach us about those enemies. So a succinct way to say this is that the enemies of God's people in the Old Testament teach us about the cosmic enemies that the church has. The human enemies in the Old Testament teach us about the cosmic enemies of the church. That is why these two psalms can use that imagery to talk about the same thing. The first one's talking about rescue from human enemies, and the second one is talking about rescue from cosmic enemies, sin, judgment, and Satan. Now, the other big picture that we see here is pictures of floods. In the first psalm, again, the enemies are represented by a flood that's coming up and sweeping them away. And in the second one, he's down in the depths of the water, and he says, from the depths I cry to you. You need to know when interpreting that, that floods in the Bible usually symbolize judgment. And the biggest case of this is the flood, Noah's flood, right? Uh, there, it was more than a symbol. The, the Lord saw that mankind had become so wicked and every inclination of our hearts so evil and violent. We were, we were literally thinking about killing each other, enslaving each other, and raping each other. All the time, he says, every inclination of our heart was always evil all the time, it says. It was that bad, and the Lord said, I'm judging the whole thing. All right, we're starting over. And the way he judged the whole earth was, was with a flood. And ever since then, floods have usually represented judgment for sin in the Bible. So with those keys, we look at these two psalms paired together, both of them using the symbols of a flood, both of them talking about enemies of God, but only one of them talking about an enemy we still have, sin, judgment, Satan, and death. And we say we could take these psalms to teach us about those things. So we take these psalms in the Christian life to teach us about God's rescue of us from judgment, from sin, and from death. So let's go through the psalms themselves then. First point I want to make from them is... Maybe the most tragic thing that I could ever say. I think it might be. Humanity is drowning in sin and death and will soon drown in judgment. I'll say that again because it's so important. Humanity is drowning in sin and death and will soon drown in judgment. It is hard to think of a more tragic thing to say. But when you look around at the world, you can see it everywhere. We are all drowning in sin. All of us trying to break what we might want to call bad habits or destructive habits and what the Bible would just call sin. And we just can't seem to get free from it. And we are all judging each other and mistreating each other and oppressing each other. And we are all dying. This is why healthcare exists, right? This is why we do so much to relieve the poor all over the world, because we are all dying. What, what is going on? Why is the world like this? It's because humanity is drowning in sin and death. We see this imagery in verses 1 through 5 of the first psalm, that, that drowning imagery would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. It is like sin and death are after us, like an army coming against us. 
uh, the flood sweeping us away, the torrent going over us, and then over us would have gone the raging waters. If you have ever been drowning in sin before, that is what it feels like. Overcome with no way of escape. And the second psalm in verse 1 uses that same imagery to talk about our sin. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. Here is a drowning man underwater, reaching a hand out for the Lord's help. We need these psalms, friends, because we're drowning. The, the alcoholic who has tried to quit and cannot stop getting drunk. What's happening? Why is it like that? He's, he's drowning in sin, and he can't get out. These words describe the, the young woman with the eating disorder who cannot stop harming herself. She's like, I want to stop, but I can't stop. What's going on? She's, she's drowning in sin. These words describe the person who wants to stop lying, but just can't stop lying. What is going on? Why does this have so much power over me? Why don't I have control over myself and do what I want to do? We're drowning in sin. These words describe all of us who have ever had health problems before. Why do we get a little worse and then a little better and then a lot worse and then a little better? Why is there the downward trajectory for all of us as we get older? Why do more and more health problems creep up on us as the years go by because we are drowning in death and we may have the power to put it off a few years but we do not have the power to stop it the water will eventually fully fill up the room so we're drowning in sin we are drowning in death and the scripture says we have an even worse problem than that it says that our, our sins and judgment for our sin just continues to pile up revelation 18:5 says it just piles up as high as heaven and so the alcoholic who cannot stop getting drunk and all of us who cannot stop with our sins, every time we're piling up more and more and more judgment against us as if there was a hundred foot dam in front of us and we were just rising the water every time. And the Lord gives the promise one day the dam is going to break and the waters of God's judgment and wrath will sweep us away. Church, we are, we are drowning in sin and death and will soon drown in judgment. There are pictures in the modern world of this very same thing that can help us to know what it feels like. And if you're a believer in Jesus, you can say, this, this is where I once was. What was it like? What did it feel like? Well, it felt probably a lot like a few soldiers in the Indian army felt in one battle back in the 90s. Uh, there was a war between India and Pakistan in those days. And there was an outpost where about as many soldiers were, as, as there are people in this room, an outpost about this big, this many soldiers in India. And they looked out and saw several thousand Pakistani soldiers marching toward them to conquer their outpost. And so they began to fight, and then they heard the shell of artillery upon them and saw that those several thousand soldiers had 40 tanks with them. Can you imagine as, as many soldiers as, as there are people in this room 
fighting against an untold thousands of soldiers attacking you who have 40 tanks at their disposal. They would, soldiers just keep pouring in, and you can win one skirmish, but they keep pouring in until they have overwhelmed you. If you're a Christian, that is something of what things used to be like for you, overwhelmed by the opposing forces. No way to stop sin, no way to stop the judgment from piling up, no way to stop our coming death. This is where we were. Another story that helps me understand what it felt like is the story of a, of a survivor from the tsunami that hit Japan. You remember the nuclear plant and the tsunami that hit that? Uh, there's a survivor who tells his story, and uh, he was working not at the power plant uh, and got the warning. There was the earthquake, and then they got the tsunami warning. And so he went home to help his family. His father was there. His two grandmothers were there. And they began preparing to evacuate and leave. But they were not able to get his grandmothers out of the house because they were elderly. It was hard to move them. And then the time when the tidal wave was supposed to come passed. And they said, oh, no tidal wave. Well, that's good news. And so they started to relax a little bit. And then uh, his mother was looking out the top story window and saw a cloud quickly approaching. But it wasn't a cloud. It was the spray from the tidal wave as it came closer and closer, crashing up against the houses and the trees before them, sending up all kinds of spray. And there it comes toward them. And so they rush to try to get the two grandmothers upstairs. They're able to get the grandmothers upstairs. It looks like the wave is not going to, to be high enough, and they'll be safe upstairs. They get them upstairs. He is downstairs pushing up when the wave hits, and the water comes in and shuts the door, and so he cannot get upstairs. He's trapped downstairs. And the water just begins pouring in to the first floor of his house. And the next thing you know, he's, he's floating in this water. And he said, my, my head was up to the ceiling, and there was a few inches of air left. And so I had my, my head up there to, to breathe. He said, I just hoped that the water wouldn't go up any higher and, and wouldn't drown me. But then the water did go up all the way. And so he just laid there, suspended in the water, and he said, I thought I might as well just breathe in this water and drown and die rather than suffer for this last minute of my life. But as he was contemplating it, he heard a loud groaning sound from underwater, and the tidal wave began to go back out to the ocean, taking the house with it. So the house collapses with him in it. Now his head is above water, and everything is rushing out to the ocean. So he says he got on top of a, of a dresser, and he could see people climbing on top of pieces of furniture and everybody being swept out into the ocean. And he said, I realized that if I stayed on this thing, I was going to be miles out of the ocean. So I steered it toward a tree, crashed into a tree, managed to hang on to it, climbed up to the top of the tree and waited there until rescue came and the wave receded. That feeling of hoping that the water doesn't go all the way to the ceiling, but then, but then it goes. That is something of what it feels like to be drowning in sin for our whole life and then see death finally take us. Now, these pictures can help us understand what it used to be like for those of us that are Christians. And if you have not come to Jesus Christ, what it is like for you, humanity is drowning in sin and death and will soon drown in judgment. So what do you do? Well, Psalm 130 tells you just what to do. 
out of the depths, right? Drowning in that water, out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. What you must do is, is cry out to the Lord. Scripture says, they that call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Isaiah 55 says, seek the Lord while he may be found, right? He can be found now. If you seek him, you will find him. Seek the Lord while he may be found. We know because he has come now to earth and the New Testament is written, we know that he has a a human name and, and it's Jesus. This Lord of the Old Testament, this God, Yahweh, has come to earth and bears the name Jesus. And he came to offer salvation to anybody who would look to him and to receive it. So my call to you is look to this Jesus Christ who has stretched his hand down to grab our hand that is reaching up for him. If you will stick your hand up and grab his hand, he will pull you out of the depths of sin. Let me get as specific as I can with that for our next point. The next point is that the Lord rescues us from sin and death. So you may be asking, if I trust Jesus to save me, like what really happens, right? That sounds very vague. Jesus will save me from sin. What, what does that really mean? He rescues us from the power of sin, from the penalty of sin, and from death. We see this talked about poetically here in the psalm. In 130 verses 3 and 4, uh, he says, If you, O Lord, would mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Right? If he was going to count all of our sins against us, we'd drown in them. Right? But with him there is forgiveness. And also then, much more poetically, in, in 124, those first five vo- verses, the idea is if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, the flood would sweep us away. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, over us would have gone the mighty waters. So what does the Lord do when we call upon him? He rescues us from those great cosmic enemies of sin and death. Particularly what he does is he frees us from the penalty of our sins. He frees us from the power of sin. And he frees us from the power of death. Let me take those one at a time. Remember that image I gave you earlier of we, were, we are standing in front of a hundred foot dam and every sin we're committing just adds more and more water, right? It is piling up as high as heaven. And one day that dam is going to burst and the flood of God's anger against sin is going to come upon us, right? This happens for each person right when we die and we face judgment. It will happen for the whole world one day. Uh, what Jesus did was he came to earth, God made man, And the wage of sin is death, and so he never sinned, but he willingly suffered and and went to a cross and died. And as he did that, all of God's wrath towards sin was poured upon him. So it's as if you're standing in front of that dam as the water's collecting, and he comes to you and he says, let me stand in your place here. You go over there to safety. And he stood there before the dam as it burst. And all of that judgment came upon him and crushed him. This is what our God willingly did for us to save us from sin. And so now, you can go stand in front of that dam all you want to, right? There's no more water back there, right? Things burst. You can go and speak with God face to face. 
And when he judges you, he says, debt is paid, right? There's nothing I could hold against you. And so the penalty of sin is paid for, canceled, eliminated for us. We have been rescued from that flood by the one who stood in its place for us. That's how he frees us from the penalty of sin. He also frees us from the power of sin. I'm sure you have had some sinful habit in your life that you have tried to break and have just said, I can't, I can't break this. I can't stop this, right? Uh, scripture has terminology for that. It calls us slaves to sin. Uh, that means that it's the master and we're the slave. And when it says you do this, we have to do what it says, right? It's got us and we don't have the power to tell it no. But what the Lord has done, if we come to him, if we trust him, he's set us free. So that means there's an old master over there all those sins that you used to want to do that still tell you, that still loves to bark out orders, do this, do this, do this. But now you have the power, if you choose to use it, to say no. You couldn't tell sin no before. Now you have the power to tell it no. Now you are no longer its slave and you choose. And there's an image for this in 124 verses 6 and 7. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us his prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. So when it came to, back to that alcoholic who just can't quit, or that young girl who can't stop hurting herself or can't stop with that eating disorder or whatever it is that you're trying to stop and you just couldn't stop, right? It was as if you were a bird locked in a cage with no way to get out. And what the Lord has done is open the door to that cage. Now you have the power to get up and walk out of the cage. You may choose not to do that, right? You may still fall into those sins. That's why you still sin, right? You still sometimes choose to do what the old master says. But as you choose to follow him, you have the power to get up and walk out. And so now the former alcoholic with the power of the gospel in his heart, with Jesus Christ living inside of him, can say, I can stop now. It's going to be hard, and I'm really weak, but I have the power now in the gospel to stop. And whatever sin it is you're trying to turn from and run from, you have power now in the gospel to stop. You have been given everything you need to never sin again. Now, you will still sin, and it will be because you did not use everything that he gave to you, but you have been given by the power of the Spirit in you everything you need. You were once slaves, but now you are freed. And so the Scripture tells us over and over again to live in that freedom, put to death those sins that remain in us, because it doesn't have power over you anymore. You have power over it. And that way, we are delivered from the power of sin. And third, we're delivered from the power of death over us. When death comes for you, it comes for you, right? You don't get to negotiate with it. You don't get to tell it, come back later. When your time comes, your time comes. What we have in the gospel, though, is John 3.16 says, that God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And we have words in Romans 8, there's now therefore no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. 
What he means there by not perishing but having everlasting life is that though we die in this life still, our soul does not perish. Our soul is brought to heaven with Jesus and kept safe there until he returns. And then, when he returns, his promise is to raise every last one of us from the dead. And those of us who have faith in him, he will give everlasting bodies to, in which our, with our immortal, bo- immortal bodies, in his perfect world he will build, we will live forever with him. So death can get your body now. It cannot get your soul. And it can't even get your body forever. Right? You've been freed from the power of death over you. And so the apostle just boasts and says, death, where is your sting, right? We're going someplace better as soon as we go, and then we'll come back in a perfect body. Now, remember I said earlier that that floods often symbolize judgment. Uh, There's a symbol for all of this in the Bible, too, and and it's baptism. Um, Because a flood of water symbolizes death and judgment often in the Scriptures, or sometimes it literally is death and judgment. And what happens when you are baptized? The scripture says baptism corresponds to Noah's flood. You, you are taken by the power of another and lowered all the way into water. Where, if you were to be held there forever, it would kill you, right? Being buried in water and essentially dead for a moment. And then the power of another person pulls you back up out of that and raises you out of that grave. Scripture says that corresponds to that flood. What does that mean? It means that those waters symbolize death and judgment, lowered into it and taken back out of it. As if to say that death and burial that Jesus endured is mine now. And that resurrection that was given to him is mine now. And so that way, Even this freedom from sin, from Satan, from death is symbolized in the Christian act of baptism. We've got a few coming up, and so I want you to know that as we see that. When we watch those people lowered and raised, we are seeing what God has done in their lives. So if that's true, what do we do now? I've implored you, call upon Jesus for salvation, how you need him to rescue you. Let's say you have, and you're a believer now. What do you do? Well, very simply, worship the Lord, right? He has saved you. Give him all the praise you can give him. If you were drowning in a real ocean, and a lifeguard came and saved you and brought you safely to shore, how you would praise and hug and lavish and thank that person for saving your life. As Christians, what we do is we live the rest of our lives with that kind of spirit, like someone who got saved from drowning, from sin and death. We see this in a few places in these Psalms. Uh, Two different words used for it, the word bless and the word fear. 124 verse 6 says, blessed be the Lord. You hear those words of worship. In 130, verse 4, the second line is, with you is forgiveness, that you may be feared. So because he has forgiven us, now we can have a relationship with him where we fear him rightly. 
What do those two words mean? Well, to bless the Lord just means to offer really exuberant praise to the Lord, to be in this relationship with him where he looks down and says, blessed be my people who I have saved. And we look up to him and say, blessed be the Lord God who has saved us. And he just blesses us downward and we bless him upward, right? Those words of praise. We bless the Lord in our worship. That other word, fear, it might confuse you a little bit. If you only be used to hearing the word fear, Negatively, that sentence is probably strange. With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Shouldn't it be that you may not be feared? Right? Well, in the scriptures and in most languages, the word fear can be negative or positive. Something that's overwhelming and terrible that you're afraid of, that would be fear. Something that's overwhelming and wonderful that you love, that feeling of look at all those stars in the sky, I can never number them. Wow. I feel like you're being overwhelmed by something good. That is fear also in the Bible. And with him, there is forgiveness so that we cannot be scared of him, but fear him in a healthy way. Fear him the way that you feel when you look at the stars in the sky, when you stand on the shore of the ocean and try to ponder how far it is to China or how far it is to England, and you're just overwhelmed by how big it is. You can have that kind of covenant relationship with God through Jesus Christ because there is forgiveness in him. That same pattern is elsewhere in the Bible. It says in another place, you will call upon me and I will deliver you and you will glorify me, right? See that progression? We call upon him, he saves us, and we spend the rest of our days glorifying him. And that helps us so much against our tendency to just kind of get comfortable in the gospel, doesn't it? Just Take it for granted, go on and live our lives and forget the wonderful things he has done for us. That would probably happen if a lifeguard saved your life in the ocean too, right? You'd be so exuberant at first, and five years later, you may not be thinking about it much, right? It's just so easy to take life for granted. But the scriptures call us over and over again to that enthusiasm of praise that says, we have been saved from drowning in sin, death, and judgment by this God. So if you have been a Christian for a long time, you need to let those pictures just well up in your heart and move you to praise the God who has saved you. That's why we get this poetic stuff in the Psalms. These things are said clearly elsewhere. They're said beautifully here in a way that moves the heart. Let them move your heart to praise your God. This is also why we sing about it so much. We sing about the gospel all the time here. At least one song every Sunday that's clearly the death and resurrection of Jesus and so much about his forgiveness and grace through faith. Why do we do that? Well, Because every Sunday we just need to sing and rehearse over and over again what he has done for us. Okay, last point. You might be asking, okay, if Jesus has rescued me from sin and Satan and death, why do I still sin? Why do I still want to do all the really terrible things I used to do? And why are we all still dying? The problem is we're, we're still living in a drowning world. So you look out and you see it even though we've been rescued. So the final point I want to make today is that the Lord will finally rescue us. In 130, verse 8, this is said in the future tense. He, he will 
redeem Israel from all of his iniquities. Did you know that the scripture speaks about your salvation in the future tense? Certainly speaks about it in the past tense, right? He himself bore our sins in his body on that tree that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It it has happened. It is accomplished on the cross. But then at other times, it says we are not destined to eternal judgment. We are destined to obtain salvation, right? Christians one day will obtain salvation. So it's in the future tense too. And in another place, the New Testament says that we are nearer now to our salvation than we were when we first believed. It speaks of salvation coming as much as it speaks about it having happened in the past. And that is because Jesus has come once, he has died, he has risen, he has ascended up to heaven, but he will come again to take everything that is rightfully his and fully and finally rescue his people. And so almost all of the things you could say about your salvation, you could say have already happened, and you could say have not happened yet, but will happen one day. I've been freed from sin to never sin again. That's happened. And also, it will happen one day. You will be freed from sin and truly never sin again. I have been freed from death. That happened. It was accomplished. But one day it will happen even more. And so we're in this strange time right now where it's all been done, but it hasn't all been done yet. And the word that theologians sometimes use for this, or the phrase they'll say, is already not yet. There is a tension in this era. It has been accomplished, but it has not yet been completed. That is why you still live in a drowning world. That is why those sins of the past keep knocking on your door and pulling you back into them. Uh, That is why you still have health problems. That is why we still have funerals as a church. Because he's come, but he's going to come. And so what we do until then is we wait in hope. If salvation has come, but it is still coming, we wait on it to finally be accomplished. So picture for this in these two Psalms, 130 verses 5 and 6. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. In his word, I hope my soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. That image is so important. He put it in there twice to make sure we get that one, right? So we are like, you got the night watch, right, in the castle, and you got to stand out there and keep your eyes peeled in the darkness for any sign that an enemy is coming. And you're there until 7.30 a.m. when the sun rises, right? And so what are you waiting on? Sunrise, right? You want that thing to come so you can be relieved. Until then, you are watching vigilantly, and you're getting tired. And then you watch vigilantly more, and you're getting even more tired. And you are weary by the end, and you are just waiting for morning. That is what it's like to live in this time period. That is what it's like to be waiting on Jesus to come back. The sunrise will visit us on high. Until then, we keep a vigilant watch. We do our work as diligently as we can, no matter how tired we get. So our soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. I might give you another analogy. Let's say December comes and it's cold outside and uh, 
Let's say you go to the store and somebody's going to pick you up from the store. And so you're standing out there in the cold. You got your coat, but it's cold. And you're just waiting on somebody to pick you up. And then they come a little later than you thought they would come. And you got two choices. You can keep waiting or you can stop waiting. Go back inside, find some other way to try to get home, right? Keep waiting or stop waiting. And the options before you as we are waiting on Jesus to come back and you're feeling colder and you're getting more and more tired, you can either stop waiting and try to find another solution or you can keep waiting. And that's what it means when he says, my soul waits for the Lord, right? Still here. He's going to come. He said he was going to come. And we just stand and we wait. So I implore you, church, wait for the Lord. He's coming. The Indian army won that battle that I told you about earlier. Outnumbered probably a hundred times as many people as they had. Forty tanks against about a hundred men. And they won. You want to know how they won? They called air support and they held out until air support got there. They didn't have to beat however many thousands of men were there and how many artillery were there. No, all they had to do was hold out and survive until air support came to relieve them. And so they did. And the opposing army lost hundreds of soldiers and the Indian army lost two soldiers. Church, what we are essentially doing in this era, we have been rescued and we will be rescued. We're like that army waiting for air support. We don't have to beat that overwhelming force. We just got to hold out till air support comes. So church, wait on the Lord like watchmen wait for the morning. Let's pray.